Welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. Today is part two of a two-part conversation I had with Josh Milburn to talk about his new book, Just Fodder, The Ethics of Feeding Animals. In part one, we focused on the ethics of feeding our companion animals, particularly dogs and cats, but also our backyard birds. In the second part, we focus on feeding wild animals that fall into our care, including animals in zoos and predators we rescue. For rescued animals, the question is not just what we should feed them while under our care, but how we should think about releasing them to eat other animals in the wild. We'll also finish with a recipe Josh brought along to share. So first, let me remind you of Josh's biography. Josh Milburn is a philosopher who writes about animals, food, and politics. He recently joined Loughborough University in the United Kingdom, where he's now a lecturer in political philosophy and a British Academy postdoctoral fellow. His first book, Just Fodder, The Ethics of Feeding Animals, published by McGill Queen's University Press, is available now. His second book, Food, Justice, and Animals, Feeding the World Respectfully, is due to be released by Oxford University Press in 2023. Josh is the host of Knowing Animals, a podcast featuring interviews with animal studies scholars, and I was actually a guest on an episode of Knowing Animals, so I'll link to that in the show notes. And now, here's the second part of my conversation with Josh Milburn. We spent a lot of time talking about domestic pets because that's the animals that we interact with more. These, these are our companions. These are the people we spend all of our time with. But actually, I think you say some more radical things in some ways about our interactions with animals that we think of as wild and disconnected from humans mm-hmm. entirely. Although obviously the zoopolis framework would suggest that we aren't. Um, so one of the things that you say is that when we rescue a predatory animal, so you know, there's a lot of rescue societies that'll take care of various animals that are hurt or um, found sick or whatever, and they'll nurse them back to health and then re-release them into the wild. You suggest that actually re-releasing them into the wild might be the wrong thing to do. Can, can you talk a little bit more about that? And then I have some questions about it. Yeah, so this I'm glad you picked up on this because I think this is from chapter six, Animal Refugees. And I think this is a wonderful illustration of the framework I'm trying to develop here and the kind of core of the relational account that I'm offering. So my suggestion is something like this. If we've got wild animals who we have rescued, whether that is rescuing from anthropogenic harm in some way, whether they've been abused or whether they are climate refugees, whether they're animals who are just suffering completely naturally, right? They, you know, they are the young of an animal who has been predated, so they're going to die unless we rescue them. We bring them into our society and this raises some difficult, fraught ethical questions. And I think that there's two sets of questions here. One is about what we feed the animals while we're looking after them, and one is about whether we release them. Now, as listeners might be able to guess from what we've already said, I'm inclined to say that we shouldn't be feeding them meat, or at least we shouldn't be killing other animals to feed them. If we're feeding them meat, we need to to think about how we're sourcing that meat in a way that is respectful to other animals. And the reasons for this are kind of fairly obvious, I think, that these other animals have rights. But then I also say that when it comes to some animals who we rescue, they shouldn't be released. The aim should not be to rehabilitate them back to health in order to release them. Now, I think that word rehabilitation is interesting, and I actually engage in some reflection on different Mm -hmm. meanings of the word rehabilitation. 
but I'll not go into that too far right now. What I'll instead say is this. The animals who we shouldn't be releasing, I suggest, are those animals who will go on to cause significant harm to other animals, specifically predatory animals. And the reason we shouldn't be releasing them is simply that they will go on, if we have successfully rehabilitated them, to harm, hurt, kill other animals who are themselves rights bearers. And if they do that, then the blood of these other animals is on our hands. Let me draw a straightforward comparison. If I shoot a gun into a forest and I hit a rabbit and the rabbit is killed, I would be responsible for that rabbit's death. I couldn't say, oh, it was the bullet that killed the rabbit. And bullets can't violate rights. They're not moral agents. So no rights were violated. I can't say, oh, it was the gun that killed the rabbit. And guns aren't moral agents, so they can't violate rights. Let me clarify, moral agency is basically the idea that uh, a particular being can understand right from wrong, so they can reflect upon their moral actions. So we accept that non-moral agents can't violate rights. If I pick up a baby and the baby hits me in the face, even though I have a right not to be punched, I wouldn't say the baby is violating my rights. So guns can't violate rights, bullets can't violate rights. Neither can dogs. So if a dog kills a rabbit, the rabbit's rights have not been violated by the dog. But the rabbit's rights might have been violated by a human who has some degree of responsibility over the dog. If I set my dog on a rabbit, I think the rabbit's blood is on my hands. Even if I release my dog into an area where I know rabbits are hanging out, if the dog goes on to kill rabbits, we might again say that the rabbit's blood is on my hands. I have violated the rights of the rabbit because I am responsible to a degree for what happened to them. So I think that to a degree is important. I accept that the, the extent to which I have violated the rabbit's rights is perhaps lower than if I have picked up the rabbit and wrung her neck myself. But I think that the rabbit still has a claim against me, right? That is, the rabbit could say, my rights are being violated. I warrant protection, or these rights warrant protection. Someone should have stopped this person from doing this, okay? So where does this... Where does the animal rescue centre enter? Well, if the aim is to rehabilitate the animal, the predatory animal, let's say it's a wolf, to bring the wolf back to health and then to release the wolf again, the centre is aiming to assist the wolf in hunting. The centre is aiming to get the wolf to a position where the wolf can kill rabbits, deer, whatever it is that wolf kill in the particular ecosystem. And the animals in that ecosystem might fairly say, hey, come on, you have helped this wolf come and attack me. You shouldn't have done that. You should have had some respect for me and my rights, because I've got rights as much as the wolf has. So why on earth are you helping that wolf kill me? Why are you not protecting me? Right? Protecting is perhaps the wrong word. Why are you actively harming me? Right? Why are you not refraining from actively harming me? Which is what we do, what you do when you release the wolf back into this environment. And I think that that might sound strange, but I think it's actually already the case that these wildlife rehabilitation centers are committed to the kinds of values that I'm drawing upon, right? Wildlife rehabilitation centers often already keep wild animals for a long time, even indefinitely, when releasing the animal would be contrary to the interests of that animal. 
So all I'm saying is I'd really like to see wildlife rehabilitation centres. And let me be clear, I'm not here trying to criticise people who are dealing with these ethically fraught issues. I accept that they're doing good work and that in challenging circumstances. And so this isn't meant to be finger wagging. Again, this is meant to be reflecting upon the ethical problems. Incidentally, ethical problems that these people are already reflecting on in many cases. Right, yeah. So I would like to see the concern and respect that is extended to the animal patrons, animal residents of the Wildlife Rehabilitation Centre, extended to those animals who these patrons, these residents, would go on to kill if released. Sure. So two things. Uh, one, just a quick, uh, I mean, this is a Philosophy of Animal Minds podcast either, but uh, you know, it's interesting you say that dogs are not moral agents. Uh, I, I don't know. I think, you know, if there's a spectrum, I think certainly my dogs know when they dis- know that they're doing a thing mm. that I am going to be disappointed in. Uh, they know that they have a relationship with me and they know that I'm going to be upset. Uh, and they feel, they, they seem to exhibit all the signs of feeling guilty about stuff um, that they do. And one of my dogs uh, has more self-control over doing things that they know I don't want them to than the other one, even though I interact with both of them the same way. So uh, I don't know. I think they're, they're pretty close to moral agents more than other sorts of animals. But certainly for wolves, I take the point that very few wolves care what I think about them. It, to me, I think that it's kind of an interesting thing to point out that people that do wildlife rehabilitation, when they are interacting with the animal, are very sort of like animal-centric in their, in their thought. They're thinking about the, this animal's welfare, um, how, to, how best to deal with its health, uh, you know, a very particular version and vision of what welfare is. Um, but they'll also do things like, um, you know, feed baby animals with a puppet so that the animals won't uh, bond with humans when they oughtn't to. Um, you know, so like, so a little bit more complex, but, you know, a fairly straightforward view of uh, the animal, uh, the animal's good for that, for that animal. But then when it comes to releasing, all of a sudden they switch to, I think, like an ecocentric kind of argument where they won't release the animal if the animal is an invasive species, for example, um, where it's, you know, it's, it's not from here and its interaction might be bad for local wildlife. You know, they might rescue an animal, but still say that, you know, like they might, like there are cat rescue places in Hawaii, but they're not going to release it back into the woods to go kill more tropical birds. Um, on the other hand, Top-level predators like wolves uh, are very good for ecosystems. Um, there's, I mean, this is very, very, very strong research that wolves allow there to be a higher population long-term of their prey species of deer or moose um, than if you don't have wolves. Because if you don't have wolves and the population spikes, you know, or, or any top-level predator, I mean, obviously in the U.S., cars are the top-level predator of deers and moose, but um, the, the population spikes uh, because they have no natural predators. They overeat their resources. There's mass starvation, which is also a very bad way to die. Um, and then we settle at a new level uh, of what they can support, which is much lower than it had been previously. Um, and also, for what it's worth, uh, a bunch of animals, uh, a bunch of plant species have now died out. And animals that depended on them, like birds and ground squirrels and things, might also die out. Um, so the top-level predators seem to, seem to have a very salutary effect on this ecosystem. They kill individual animals. But now there are more deer than there would be otherwise. You can live flourishing lives except when they're eaten by wolves. Uh, so what do you think about that kind of a position that for the good of deer in general, but not the specific victim deer, uh, it would be good to, uh, to, to release wolves? And, you know, you talk about a bullet, uh, same for hunting, for hunting individual deers. Yeah, I think that's a really great set of questions. And it raises a whole host of issues. Let me, let me start with the question of moral agency. I've been accused in the past of being quite conservative 
with regards to the the attributes that I, with regards to the capacities that they attribute to animal minds. This is partly a methodological concern, actually, which is that I don't want my arguments to rest too strongly on controversial scientific claims. I would rather advance using more widely accepted claims. So I'm very I'm very interested in these questions about animals potentially being moral agents that's coming out of these questions in philosophy of animal minds and indeed other areas. Though I think, and I'll not get into this, but I think they raise a whole host of difficult ethical questions about animals being responsible for the harm that they do yeah. and might obligate us to engage in some quite surprising activities concerning protecting animals from each other or engaging with animals in, in very different ways that are quite different i think to yeah, people who people do that work don't don't engage with that but they might be sort of accidentally backing into arguments like wolves are evil but not quite smart enough to know how evil they are which is a that's a weird claim <laughs> i agree and i think a lot of this work is coming out of neuroscience and philosophy of science and philosophy of mind and the ethical consequences of it haven't been fully tapped yet. Yeah. I don't think that's, I'm not blaming anyone here, and I'm certainly not right. saying the people doing this work are doing bad work. They're not. I just think there are scary consequences to these, these arguments that haven't been fully plumbed. So I accept that maybe if I'm wrong about the questions of moral agency, things play out a bit differently, but then they, the results might not be any less surprising, let's put it yeah. like that. So on the question of ecosystems, mm-hmm. I think there are there's a range of different ways you might make this kind of challenge to what I'm saying. And so I think it's worth specifying three kind of controversial claims I'm making that you might want to challenge or that that challenge might be uh, against. So the first that I'm claiming, and this is a classic kind of animal ethics, animal rights claim, is that it's individuals who matter, not collectives. So... I'm not directly concerned with protecting ecosystems. I'm concerned with protecting ecosystems insofar as ecosystems are good for animals. But as some people in animal ethics and what we call the wild wild animal suffering literature have pointed out, ecosystems might not actually be that good for animals anyways. Now, as you know from the final chapter of this book, I'm not advocating that we we eliminate ecosystems and we eliminate predator-prey relationships, although I think some people think that is what I'm saying. It's not. Um, but I'm not necessarily too excited about protecting ecosystems for ecosystems' sake. Now, the second controversial claim I'm making is what I was just discussing about how we can gain a degree of responsibility for the actions of animals when we become relevantly entangled with them. So even while I might be, I'm not sure if this is the right word, but okay with wild wolves killing wild deer, I'm a bit more concerned with wolves who we are relevantly entangled with killing deer in the same way that I'm concerned about dogs killing deer, right? Dogs bothering deer, domestic dogs, that is. And then third, this comes from the animal rights side of what I'm doing as compared to the utilitarian side, the claim that even if doing X would lead to less deer suffering overall isn't necessarily decisive for me. I'm concerned with respecting deer rights that might sometimes mean not doing something to an individual deer, even if other deer might have benefited from it. So I guess what I'm saying here is in response to your particular example of, sure, this might be worse for that individual deer, but it might be better for deer populations as a whole. My response would be, well, 
if we are not respecting that deer's rights, it doesn't matter whether it's better for the population as a whole. The whole point of rights is that we are protected from being used as a resource for others, right? Including when those others will benefit considerably. Now, that might sound really controversial, but in the human case, it really isn't. Even right. if through some set of circumstances, well, so a classic example, even if killing me and harvesting my organs would save five others, you can't do it because right. I have rights not to be killed and have my organs used and rights against my organs being used without my consent. That's the whole point of rights. The whole point of rights is we are protected, even if not protecting us would benefit others. And again, those of you who know political philosophy might hear the voice of Nozick in what I'm saying there. I'm not an Ezekian, but I find a lot of his claims very, very compelling. So where does that leave us? Well, I think if we do need to control or enhance ecosystems, and that's an if, but if we do, if we have good reason to try to protect or enhance ecosystems, we need to ask difficult questions about how we can do that while also respecting animal rights. So just as I'm going to be very worried about controlling animal populations with a gun for the sake of ecosystems, I'm going to be moderately, and that's the point about the degrees of responsibility, I'm going to be moderately concerned about controlling animal populations with predators for the sake of ecosystems. What other options are there? I mentioned Claire Palmer earlier. She's doing really interesting work about population control using contraceptives and using gene drives. And those are the kinds of things that I'm more drawn towards. If we do need to play our hand in ecosystems, those are the sort of things I'm excited about rather than killing, rather than the introduction of predators. Okay. And then, yeah, I think that's interesting. Uh, I might come back to that question actually through this through a different way, because while our interactions with wild or semi-wild rescued animals, uh, ethically, I think is actually a more radical claim in your book than the thing about dogs and cats, because like, yeah, I got to decide what they eat, right? Um, There's also sort of an interesting, uh, pretty radical metaphysical claim going on too, that you make about um, our relationships with animals where you, so we can imagine a wild animal far away that we don't have any interaction with, um, but actually there's no such thing, right? That there's a, a, an animal far away that we have no interaction with, particularly in an era of climate change. Um, we might be actually quite implicated in, say, um, a Mexican hawk where I live now, um, eating, uh, you know, let's say a green jay, because that is a, a semi-endangered species that lives down here. Um, Mexican hawks are increasingly living where I live now. Um, people think it's because of climate change pushing them farther north where it's cooler. Um, I mean, they like hot updrafts to, to go straight up, but they don't like uniformly hot days. That doesn't, they can't fly as high. Um, and there's more prey. And so they're getting pushed farther north. They're interacting with animals they might not have interacted with otherwise. Uh, so it's not the case that that hawk up in the sky eating that green jay up in the sky has any, has nothing to do with me. In fact, me driving my car sort of actually does put me into a relationship with them. And, and you you touch on these issues in your book as well. Yeah, and I think these are some of the most difficult issues I address, actually. And so, again, I might have to fall back on the, it's complicated. These are issues that I can't necessarily resolve in the space of a book. But I think you're absolutely right that it's very hard to imagine in 2022 that there is any animal in the world who is unimpacted by humans. You know, we have changed the composition of the air. We have changed the temperature of the earth. We've changed you know, whole host of things right into the deepest sea, right into the deepest jungle, right into the highest mountain, right? The human impact can be felt or 
at least we could tell a plausible story about how it could be felt. And so we are implicated in animal lives in certain ways. I suppose the thing to then ask is, what kind of implication is this? And is this the kind of implication that makes us responsible for harms that they're facing? And I think there are some examples which are fairly straightforward. So let me use a kind of philosopher-style thought experiment, but it's actually entirely real. There are islands that are vanishing under rising sea levels. Animals who live there, even if they've never encountered a human, are being directly negatively impacted by yeah. climate change. Yeah. We seem to be directly responsible for the plight that they're facing. There are other animals who are being chased up mountains, right? And what that means is they need to be at high altitude, low temperature, etc. And yet the, the lower down, the middle of the mountain where they used to live is now too hot for them because of global warming. And so they're being chased up the mountain. And of course, they are going to run out of mountain in X number of years and they're going to die, right? And these are individuals that I'm concerned about, not species, not populations, but individuals. And these are individuals who do seem to have a very significant claim against us. We collectively are causally responsible for the plight that they face. But there's the key word, collectively. That then raises a whole host of other complex issues. And there's already an enormous literature about how we make good climate change impacting humans, given that there's no direct individual, no individual who's directly responsible for the harms faced by human individuals. And so a parallel conversation, I think, needs to take place about animals. And I think that if we take the idea of animals having rights seriously, climate change, which is already one of the worst things <laughs> imaginable, one of the biggest ethical problems we face, political, practical, ethical, etc., problems we face, becomes even bigger because of the impact it is having on individual humans. And I'm very glad to see that these kinds of conversations are being put together by, by myself and by lots of others. Jeff Sable recently has a lot of great work addressing this question of the interaction of animals and climate and the interaction between climate change and the impact on animals, wild and domesticated. Yeah, And, and I think I, these are conversations we need to have. Yeah, and I think it actually... Um maybe even supports the claims you were making about our thoughts about releasing wolves into the wild. Because while, I mean, I'm just guessing, I'm doing that thing philosophers do where I, I assume how most people's intuitions are. Um, <laughs> I'm not doing the thing philosophers usually do where they say, it turns out most people have my intuitions. I'm actually saying they have different ones than I do. But I, based on my non-study of talking to people, um, I think that a most people find it odd to say that we shouldn't release wolves. They think wolves are good for the forest, whatever that means. Um, they're all secretly, um, you know, ecocentric thinkers, but only in very specific circumstances. Yeah. Um, so, right. They think that that's weird. They should, wild animals should be able to hunt. It's good. That they're wolves that are hunting and stuff like that. But as soon as you start to talk about invasive species, um, people are actually quite, uh, willing, I think, to say that we ought to protect uh, prey animals from invasive predators, right? So when you think of, so the, the idea that now predator, most predators are going to start becoming invasive predators as they move through climate change, um, arguably they already were because we're pushing them when we build a city. We move to a place where wolves and bears are, we build a city, they can't be there, and so they're going to have to go somewhere else. Um, but I think that then people are much more open to the idea that having these animals be in a place that they quote unquote shouldn't be, um, that then we sort of 
like we need to think about what they're going to be doing there. Um, you know, like Joey Tuminello's work suggests that uh, a lot of people's response to that is just kill every invasive animal, but that will become yeah. presumably less of a uh, a good response as more, you know, everything becomes invasive, everything's a climate refugee. Um, but that it becomes an ethical problem. I think people do see that once they aren't in their spot, you know, which I guess is defined as books I read when I was a kid with pictures of the woods. If, if there's something that's there that I didn't see when I was a kid, then something is wrong. And I, I realize that we need to do something about that in some way. Yeah, I think this is this is such a fraught area. <laughs> That's a recurring answer here, isn't it? Um, let me tell you about a paper I've written recently, just published in the Journal of Agricultural and Environmental Ethics, called "Welcoming Wild Animals and Obligations of Assistance." Ooh, and this one is very much in the flavour of what I'm talking about in this book. It's kind of applying the the frameworks I'm developing in the book to to a different kind of case. And in the conclusion of that paper. I raised the question of deliberate introductions. And I think that deliberate introductions are a fascinating case because my theoretical kind of commitment suggests that when we deliberately introduce animals into a space, we actually have more obligations to them than we do to the animals that are already there. Because these animals are there because of us. Mm -hmm. You know, if I pick you up and kidnap you and drop you in a city you don't know, I think it's quite reasonable you'd say, hey, Josh, you owe me, you owe me something here. Help me find my way home or at least pay for a nice hotel or something. Yeah. You know, whereas the people on the street, they might say, hey, you've put this guy, Ian, in, on the street and he's scary. I don't like him. You shouldn't have done that. But really, it seems like my obligation is a little bit more towards you. Now, if you happen to be, sorry, this, this metaphor, this thought experiment is getting a bit baroque yeah, okay. now, but <laughs> if you happen to be an axe-wielding lunatic, then maybe I would owe a lot to the people who are on that street. So if you happen to be a predatory animal that I'm introducing, you can yeah. see where I'm going with this. But I think that introducing, deliberately introducing an animal, or even perhaps accidentally introducing an animal, binds us to them in particular kinds of ways that suggest that we have obligations towards them. We certainly have obligations towards the individual animals that we introduce, and we might even have obligations to their, towards their descendants. And in this particular paper I just mentioned, I use the language of welcoming, which again echoes with the idea of hospitality that I was yeah. talking about before. The fact that we welcome some animals seems to bring us into a normatively salient relationship with them and changes the nature of the relationship. So if we welcome wild animals, it seems like we might have obligations to help and assist them, even if we don't normally have obligations to help. That's, and really, them. that's really interesting. I, I, I loosely follow the things that you uh, publish, and I've read a, quite a bit of them, but I don't have an email alert. So I didn't know about that paper, uh, which I should have, because I've actually been working, I've been thinking through a while a paper that's on the back burner because I'm working on a book right now. So if my publisher is listening, I'm not writing this paper right now, but I am thinking <laughs> about a paper uh, about how people seem to intuitively have place-based rights. <laughs> This idea that, uh, especially for non-human animals, but people too, that uh, things only have rights if they are in the place where they're supposed to be, right? And our treatment of invasive species being a really good example that we have, we only have, or we only have duties, if you don't like rights, which I also don't really like that, but uh, people have duties toward or responsibilities toward or a particular relationship um, toward animals when they're in the place where they're supposed to be. And when things aren't where they're supposed to be, when they're away from their home, then all bets are off, right? I can do whatever I want to uh, wild hogs on Catalina Island in California because they're not supposed to be wild hogs on Catalina Island. That's not right. And because they're out of place and I can eat them, I can hit them with my car, I can shoot them from a helicopter, I can do whatever I want, it doesn't matter. 
Um, and I think that that's a really interesting intuition that people have and worth exploring, particularly in the context of climate change refugees. So I'm going to go read that paper after this conversation. <laughs> that, I mean, that's really fascinating because I think that that's another element of conservatism of what I'm doing here. And I, this mm -hmm. is very much small C conservatism. You know, right. I'm, not, I'm not arguing for like Burke's political project. Or <laughs> but the, the methodological conservatism, I'm taking existing frameworks and extending them. So we talked about Val Plumwood before. Mm -hmm. People like Val Plumwood would be very critical of what I'm doing here, taking kind of liberal theory and rights theory and deontological theory and extending them to include animals. Whereas they might say, well, we need radically new systems to think about animals. Now, one of the elements of that is that I sort of take existing state structures for granted in this work. Mm -hmm. And I'm very open to frameworks that talk about animals in relation to, I don't know, anarchism or something like that, uh, or cosmopolitanism, right? Mm -hmm. These radically different ways of organizing our state structures and international structures or non-state, non-international structures. But I am very interested in seeing where we can get from where we are now. And the reason I mention that in relation to the place-based rights is that I'm kind of assuming that we'll continue, we'll continue to live in houses in suburban neighborhoods and mm -hmm. birds will continue to visit our gardens. Because I think that some people might say, well, if we take animal rights seriously, we need to abolish houses, right? We need to get off their land. You know, they were there first. I mean, we don't have any right to this land. We need to abolish farmland, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, that leads us down a very scary line because, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny thing. I was skimming, not skimming, I was checking through every line of my book um, in advance of the, the, final, uh, the final proof being prepared. And the last thing I did was I went through every single footnote and double checked every single footnote. Now, a little tip for a junior academics listening, the good stuff is always in the footnotes. There's always something scary hidden away in a footnote. But I laughed out loud when I came across a footnote that I'd forgotten was there. And I, the footnote was something to the effect of leaving aside for now the possibility of voluntary human extinction. <laughs> and I think that's a nice kind of methodological point. I accept that there are ways to lead us to those kinds of arguments. Those are not the kind of arguments I'm interested in exploring in this work. Those are not the kind of arguments I explore actually in any of my work thus far. Or maybe in the future, who knows? So I think that I am taking for granted certain kinds of, well, I, I have starting assumptions. We always have starting assumptions in my work. And perhaps my starting assumptions will be a little bit conservative for some readers. Maybe they will be extremely radical for others. Yeah, well, you start, you start from the conservative and you go to the radical, which I think is always a good move if you're trying to push people to think a different way. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a difference. I, for me, the, the interesting possibility that I mean, maybe this just comes because I live in the United States in a land that was in recent memory uh, illegally taken from indigenous people and then from Spain and then whatever, um, and is even in still today oppressing groups like that, that the possibility that maybe we shouldn't be here, but yet there's nowhere for enough for that many people to go. Good Lord knows Ireland and Germany couldn't take all the German and Irish Americans back. Um, that uh, how do we move through a world that has that unmeetable obligation is, uh, you know, more, more interesting in the way that I orient towards things. But I have one hard question left for you. Uh, so so uh, to the extent any of them are hard, uh, which is that a bunch of times here, you've said that, look, you know, we have to sometimes fall into non-ideal ethics. Uh, you know, it's, it's complicated. We can't just say we shouldn't have 
that cats shouldn't exist or that wolves shouldn't exist outside of zoos, um, you know, but rather we need to think through in this kind of complicated, nuanced way and people will be doing the best they can. And I'm trying to point them in good directions and ask questions, but not, okay, good. But then also you say that you don't look in this book at all in questions about what we should feed animals that we are raising to slaughter and eat. And you say that that's because there's no space in the book. I, I don't know if you meant that physically. Uh, to discuss how to conduct relationships that shouldn't exist in the first place. Um, shouldn't, I mean, isn't there such a thing as better or worse uh, terrible situations? Even if it's terrible for us to raise animals to eat them, uh, isn't it even worse to do that and to uh, slaughter other animals um, to feed those animals that we ourselves are going to eat? Yeah, that's a great question. And funnily enough, that question reminds me in a big way of a question I asked you when you featured on Knowing Animals, the podcast that I host. That's right. Check that and out. I was, I was asking from the other direction, right? right? Because we need to negotiate the complexity of engaging with practices that we think shouldn't exist. And we can go too far one way, we can go too far the other way. We can go too far one way if we start to say, hey, you see this awful thing you're doing? Well, maybe you could make it ever so slightly better if you did this thing, when really what we should be doing is saying, what on earth are you doing? Stop doing that awful thing. Right. And we can go too far the other way if we say, right, the perfect world would be X, and we are a very, very, very long way from X. Um, so every one of you is atrocious for not behaving in X way. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not sure that that's really helpful, right? I'm being very abstract there, but you can you can fill in your awful practice and your X with whatever you like. And so I think you and I perhaps fall at different points on this spectrum. I'm not particularly drawn towards, well, this comes with an asterisk, and I'll explain the asterisk in a second. I'm not particularly drawn towards working on questions of existing animal agriculture, industrial animal agriculture, and saying, how can we make this a little bit more humane? I think my, my intuitions there align somewhat with the abolitionist approach that says, no, well, we need, to, we need to get rid of this. This is not something we need to make better. It's something we need to get rid of. Um, the asterisk is, and this is in relation to, to other work outside of this book, I'm interested in ways that we can retain the good bits of farming. And this is something I look at elsewhere, how we could have pastoralism that's respectful to animals and these kinds of questions. That's not what I'm looking at in this book. So that's my asterisk to you know, this, this question about not engaging with, with animal agriculture in that way. And the other alternative would be to say, well, we're stuck with animal agriculture. How can we make it a little bit better? And we're going, to, we're going to land at different points on these, these spectrums. And I think that there is a sense in which you could very easily write a whole book about the ethics of feeding farmed animals, because the questions are quite different to the ones that I'm addressing in this book. Mm -hmm. And the ones I'm addressing in this book are about the particular kinds of relationships. And in some ways, the answer for feeding these animals is quite simple in that, yes, we have to feed them. <laughs> and yes, we have to pay attention to questions around food justice and questions around the sourcing of these products that are being fed to them. And we need to pay attention to whether the food that we're giving them is healthy. So in some ways, the answer is not too different from uh, the question of feeding companion animals, but with the shadow of, well, actually, none of this should be taking place at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe. So it's precisely because you're not willing to say there shouldn't be any cats or there shouldn't be any wolves that then you're pushed into these much more complicated, nuanced conversations. Whereas that first post of, well, yeah, there probably shouldn't be stockyards. 
sort of ends you from having to then get pushed into those kind of more nuanced conversations that well, we shouldn't do that in the first place. Yeah. But then on my framework, if we leave aside the fact there shouldn't be stockyards, the, the questions are quite simple, really, because yes, we are confining these animals. Yes, we have a duty to feed them. Yes, we have a duty to support their health and so forth. Yeah. Now, if we were farming, well, we do farm alligators. I was going to say if we're farming alligators, some people do farm alligators. But if we were farming carnivorous animals, there might be different questions there. But again, it's going to sound quite similar to the questions that I'm addressing around um, companion animals. But let me say that, and I do finish the book with this, this kind of thought, or one of the thoughts I finish with. I've developed a kind of framework. I've identified a range of different considerations. And actually, this framework and these considerations could be applied to other kinds of cases as well that I haven't spoken about at length or that I haven't even imagined. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And certainly it's an invitation for people to engage with the work and think through it from that perspective. Um, and then, you know, certainly it, you know, because it is the case that uh, non-carnivorous, quote unquote, carnivorous animals uh, are given animal products uh, in their feed uh, in large uh, animal raising for slaughter uh, operations. Pigs, yeah. cows, sheep are given um, meat, bone, things like that. Uh, milk products, eggs products that uh, we don't usually think about, which so well, that I mean, the answer about what to do ethically in your framework might be pretty obvious. It's still an interesting thing for people to think about that they don't, they might not know the, the degrees to which we implicate uh, meat eating in our, in our uh, meat producing. So just to kind of wrap up, uh, I always ask people to bring a recipe. And the last time I think you, this is just remember, I didn't check. I think you brought a ribs recipe. Uh, which was quite good. I, I made it. That's why I remember it. But uh, this time you brought something a little bit different. Can you talk about that? Yes. So this is from a book called Happy Vegan Christmas by, and I may be pronouncing this wrong, but Caroline Johnson. So like a lot of academics, I'm a book person. So there's books all around my house and my kitchen is absolutely full of vegan cookbooks. Now, this is a book about Christmas. Funnily enough, the last recipe I gave was a Christmas yeah, recipe as well. How yeah. strange. That says a lot about me, doesn't it? Um, but this is a Christmas cookbook that is based on Scandinavian cooking. Now, the reason that I mention it, the reason that I suggest it as a recipe for today, is it's one of the few vegan cookbooks I've come across with recipes for animals. And the particular recipe I've drawn out, and is one I've made, is suet cups for winter garden birds. Now, suet, of course, is typically animal-based. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of bird food is animal-based in various ways, whether that's because it contains fat from cattle or pigs or, or other mammals, or whether it contains uh, mealworms or other invertebrates. Yeah, that's worth so, pointing out for people that don't know that. Um, like, if you buy those, like, bells of seeds that look that look so pretty uh, for your bird to eat, speaking, again, because my mom feeds birds, and so I had this conversation with her, uh, that that... You are, you are having birds that normally want to eat nuts and seeds. You're giving them lard from pigs and cows. Presumably, most small sparrows can't hunt birds and cows. You are doing a weird move, even by like sort of the folk idea of uh, talos and flourishing. <laughs> Those birds are, are, are all of a sudden being turned into raptors uh, against their will. Uh, that's correct. And these, this product is beneficial to the birds. I'm not going to deny yeah, that, right? Yeah. They, they they get fat from it. So a lot of people feed cheese to birds as well. Mm -hmm. So I sometimes feed them vegan cheese if I've got some that's gone off. Uh, some birds like it, some birds don't. But I mean, birds are individuals, as we sure. know. Now, this particular recipe is making vegan suet out of coconut oil, rapeseed oil, and then mixed wild bird seeds. So it's not a particularly complex recipe at all. 
But it's what I made because I'd always wanted to have these fat balls. I, maybe they're not called fat balls everywhere. That's what we call them, but it's quite a funny name, right? Um, <laughs> we wanted to have these fat balls for birds, um, yet we could never find vegan ones. And the birds did respond to it. Some Again, some birds liked it, some birds didn't. We found that sometimes starlings, um, I don't know if you have starlings, they're kind of grackle-like, um, yeah. but starlings would sometimes come in en masse and, and peck away at it and it'd be gone in seconds. Other times the sparrows would have a little peck and then move away and then come back and have another little peck and it would stay for a few days. The only thing I would say about this recipe in relation to making it is that because it's based on coconut oil, it's great for a Scandinavian climate, mm. probably not for a Texas climate. Yeah, good so, point. You'd, have a puddle, you'd have a puddle of seeds, perhaps. Absolutely. So I made them in winter and they were great and the birds really liked them. But as it came around to spring, I kept putting them out and then I realized that they were dripping. So in the midday sun, they would start to drip uh, even in early spring. So is it a perfect substitute for the animal products? No. But am I excited to see the attempts to make vegan alternatives to these products that, like you say, you don't even think about containing animal products most of the time? Yes, I'm always excited about alternatives. I'm always excited about replacement. And of course, given the nature of the book that we've been talking about today, I'm always excited to see people talking about animals eating bees as well as humans. Sure. Yeah, thanks a lot. So um, is there a place that you'd point people who are interested in seeing more about, well, I mean, obviously they should all buy this book, but after they've done that, about following your other work? Oh, my work. Yes, absolutely. So people are very welcome to follow me on Twitter. I'm at there at Josh L. Milburn. Um, they can also follow me on Instagram at a vegan philosopher, though I should say my Instagram is a bit more fun than my Twitter, which is, mm. which is quite professional. So lots of pictures of my vegetables and flowers are found on walks and things. I have a website, which is joshmilburn.com think josh-milburn.com i'll find the real one and put a note to it in, in the show yeah. as well thank you um but i also have a podcast as i mentioned before which is the knowing animals podcast and that involves interviews with people who are working on animal studies broadly construed and we do talk about food an awful lot given my own interests um and we do talk to philosophers awful a lot given my own interests so i think there'll be lots of episodes of knowing animals which will be of interest to listeners of this podcast as well yeah, everyone should listen to the one that I'm on. And then if you have time to any of the others. Right. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Josh. I really appreciate this. I think this was a really neat conversation. Yo, thanks so much for having me back. And it's really nice to talk to you about a different side of my research, what I was talking about last time. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think you're fascinating. You're my, you're my first repeat guest. So that's a, a positive sign. Oh, what an honor. Thank you. That was part two of my conversation with Josh Milburn. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I encourage you to go take a listen. Links are in the show notes, including a link to Josh's new book, so go check it out. If you'd like to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd really appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at FoodThoughtPod. And if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, you can drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. 